Hello again. I wonder if you've ever hired anyone to do a job for you. If that was the case, you probably wanted it done in a certain way. Or perhaps you own a business and you employ people. You might need to train workers to do things in a certain way that delivers the objectives of what the business needs to do or create. Well, God, too, wants us to do certain things in a certain way. So the question we're asking today is how does God train his workers? Hi, my name is Jeremy McCandless and welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. So today, friends, we're covering the passage in the book of Exodus, part three of season five of what will be a journey through the entire book of Exodus. And we'll be covering the whole chapter, verses one to 25. And the title I've given for today's podcast is Preparation for Service. So we'll all know if we've ever hired someone to do a job. Maybe you needed a gardener to come in or you've decided to do some repurposing of your living space or remodeling your house. So I would imagine in a scenario like that, you'd want to have the jobs done in a certain way and you would sort of make it clear what you wanted to happen. You'd probably instruct those people in your employment to do things in such a way that it would really bring about the outcome that you wanted. And as I said, if you have your own business and you employ people, well, it's very normal to instruct people how to do the jobs they need to do or to train them how to do the job that are needed to be done by the business. And God, too, indeed wants us to do certain things in a certain way. So the question we're asking today is how does God train his workers? So welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast, a project to work together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, over a number of years. If you're here for the first time, then why not consider clicking on the subscribe button wherever you got this podcast from, and that way you need never miss another single episode. And that way you can make the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. God really does want us to do certain things in a certain way. So the question we're asking today is how will God train us? How does God train his workers? In fact, the Bible many times says that we're meant not just to see ourselves as workers for God, but as in fact his servants. Maybe you think of God's servants usually as those people who you view and look, well, they're employed in full-time ministry. We think of people like a minister or a pastor or maybe even a missionary. But, as I've mentioned, and as I've said many times, and the Bible teaches many times, we are all, in fact, in ministry. So in this case, then maybe we need to be asking how God should train us, ourselves. As servants, what do we have to do to be trained to serve God? To minister to others, in other words. Now today, when someone says they want to prepare for ministry then the automatic response would probably be something along the lines of, well, that you should go to Bible college and train. But today, more and more people are forsaking the formal training and the preparation for a full-time ministry. And what they're doing is they're finding a way of expressing their Christian life of service and ministry in other ways and preparing for it in other ways. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
I have known many people who have gone through the Bible college or university experience studying theology, and they come out the other side not just not prepared for ministry, but with their faith dismantled and destroyed. Others do well in an academic institution and they get ordained and they get appointed at their first church but then when they bump into real people in real life situations they crash and burn. So I think it's worth asking what did God do before there were these things called universities and Bible colleges because in the history of God's work among his people the idea of a training college has only come on the scene comparatively recently. So how did God train people? And how does God train people today who don't have the means, the opportunity or the financial resources to go the Bible college or university route? It's worth just saying before I go any further, saying some of the most outstanding leaders in modern times didn't even go to Bible college or university at all. The greatest Baptist preacher who's probably ever lived was a man called Charles Spurgeon and he didn't even go to what we would today call a further education college at all to study anything. And there are other great teachers in recent years in the USA as well. I could name someone called Harry Ironside who never went to Bible college or seminary and yet he still taught in them in later life for 20 years. And there are others I'm sure we could put on the list. So how did God train those people? And how did God train people before that, back in the times of the Bible? And how might he train us still today? Well, I think a study of Moses, particularly in his call in these early chapters, will give us an insight or two into how prepared him for service right from the very beginning. So we're going to look at the beginnings of the life of Moses and I'll begin to do that by reading the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 2 for you. And it says this, and in my Bible it's entitled Moses is born. And it says, and a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, in other words, a a boat, made a boat of bulrushes for him, daubed it with absalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood afar off to witness what should be done for him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when they saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This must be one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman, so that she may nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother, and then Pharaoh's daughter came to her and said, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Call him that name because I drew him out of the water. I'd like to pause at this point and talk about what's going on here and what we've just read. 
We'll pick up the rest of this chapter, verse 11, a little later. These first 10 verses are simply telling us about the life of Moses. But in order to understand what's going on in these verses, we need to remind ourselves of what's happened at the close of the previous chapter. And there are a few important little things in here that if you don't read them closely, you may overlook really some really important things and some important things that point to the providence of God. But for context, let's just go back to the closing verses of Exodus 21, where it tells us that Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, that's among the Israelites, you are to cast him into the river, but every daughter you can let live. So what is important to remember, at the time Moses is born, Pharaoh is feeling threatened by this explosive growth of the Israelite nation, that's living within Egypt. So he commands that the midwives, first of all, they kill the baby boys so that they won't continue to grow in numbers. And after various other strategies fail, along with that first one, he then commands that everybody should take any male Israelite babies they find and throw them in the river to kill them. And that's the backdrop for what we're seeing here in chapter 2. And as chapter 2 opens, we're told that there was a man Uh, Now, I think it's interesting that he's not named. He will be named later in the book, and I'll deal with that when we come to it. But anyway, this man is identified as taking a wife from within a Levite family. So here we have two people from the same tribe, which, by the way, is the tribe that will become the priestly tribe. And these two people, the man and the woman, they get married. And in verse 2, it quickly tells us that the woman has a son, And it says that she saw he was a beautiful child. But it also tells us that she hid him for three months, obviously trying to avoid him being taken away and killed. The child is described as beautiful. Now there's more going on than this being just a good-looking child. The Hebrew word translated beautiful means pleasant and agreeable as well. So most Bible expositors who come to this passage say that the idea here is being that this child that is born the one who will we will later find out is Moses has more than just physical beauty it involves an attractiveness of character as well so she hides him for three months which is probably possible when a child is very young and nursing but it's important to note that the text says the mother says I'm going to hide in and I'm going to trust the Lord to keep him faith so right from the beginning she's exercising faith In fact, Hebrews chapter 9 in the New Testament confirms this for us. In fact, it suggests she may have had some kind of revelation. This is such a very important example of someone living by faith. You see, you don't just believe in your own faith. In the Bible, this word, faith, when it's used, is describing something as believing in something that God has actually revealed or said. Faith in the Bible is never separated from the object of our faith, the person we have faith in. And the person who is the object of our faith is God himself. You know, it saddens me to see how often in the modern church faith is taught almost as a standalone separate thing. Just believe and it will be so, people are told, instead of believe in God. Look at what God has said, look at what he's done, and believe he has the personhood, the character, to do what he says. And you can trust in him because you know his character as revealed in the Bible, and you know that he will do what it says through his word. 
You see, you can't believe and trust in God until you hear God speak. And the fact is that in this situation, we have an example where God speaks and she, this lady, this mother of this young child, she hears what is said. And by her actions, she demonstrates that she has faith in God. By faith, her actions were done by faith. And it indicates that God communicated with her that this is indeed a special child. Maybe even she knew that at some level that this child was going to be a deliverer, a saviour of the nation of Israel. At any rate, she trusted in the Lord and what he said, trusting that he would rescue the child, keep the child safe if necessary, rescue the child. So she placed him in a basket and placed him in the bulrushes at the edge of the Nile. So what they did, it says in the text, is they made an ark of bulrushes, which meant she just fashions some bulrushes into the shape of a bowl for this baby. And then it tells us she makes it waterproof by covering it with tar or pitch before putting it in the river. Now, as a side note, the Bible here is telling us that there's oil in the Middle East at least a thousand years before anybody even knew or thought that these things might have an energy value. As an aside, did you know that some 19th century archaeologists were employed by the Standard Oil Company to survey this land based upon this verse? Some executive of Standard Oil read his Bible and thought, hmm, that's interesting, I wonder. And because of that, they sent archaeologists out there to study the area and Standard Oil were the company that established that there was oil in the Middle East. Anyway, back to the main text. At any rate, they put this baby in the boat. Now, it's important to note that this isn't just a case of sticking him in the bulrushes and abandoning him, because there's a plan behind this, because the mother instructed her sister, Moses' aunt, to go and watch over this situation and see what happens. So the sister, afar to the side, indicating that this is intentional because she's placed the baby in the water near a place where Pharaoh's daughters come down to bathe at the river regularly. And as the princess and her retinue appear and are bathing, some of the maids are walking along the riverside and they see the little boat among the reeds and they go and retrieve it. When they look into it, the child begins to cry at that point, thus raising compassion in them. Now remember what are they supposed to do with any male Hebrew child they find? That's right, they're meant to throw them in the river and drown them. And who are these maids now going and showing this baby to? They're showing it to Pharaoh's daughter, the one who issued this edict. And what does she do? She says, I'll keep this child. But then she says, first, go and find a Hebrew maid to nurse the child for me. And immediately... Moses' aunt, his mother's sister, stepped forward and, and says, I'll go find you one. So now Moses' aunt goes to find the nursemaid, talk about the providence of God, because who does she fetch? She fetches Moses' real mother. Pharaoh's daughter then says to her, to Moses' real mother, take the child away and nurse him for me, and I'll pay you for the privilege of doing it. I mean, it really couldn't get any better than this, could it? I'm going to let you be the one to mother this child, she says, to Moses' mother. 
So Moses' mother trusted God to save him, and God not only saves the child, but he, in his providence, lets her as the real mother nurse him, and, to top it all, she will get paid for doing it. That's God doing abundantly and above all things, way above anything that we can imagine or ask. Anyway, we see Pharaoh's daughter adopting Moses, and she calls his name Moses, saying it is because I drew him out of the water, which is actually what that name means. So again, we have the Lord working to save this little guy's life and makes him, in a sense, the proxy grandson of Pharaoh, the very guy who commanded that he should have been killed. That, my friends, is the way the Lord works. It's just incredible. So let me just pause there at that moment and note that what we have here in these first 10 verses is meant to teach us that God, through his providence, is protecting and preparing Moses for his future, which of course will be his future ministry. And he's doing it providentially. The seeming coincidences in this passage, like Pharaoh's daughters happening to bathe right where the basket is floating, the baby crying out at the right moment, drawing attention to himself and raising a sense of compassion amongst Pharaoh's daughter, and even Moses' mother being chosen by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse the child. All these facts point to the fact that God's providence is clearly evident in his care and protection of Moses. Miraculously, you might say, he's restored to his very own parents in an amazing display of God's control over real-world events. Moses' own mother is united with her child, which in a way then becomes legally sanctioned by the house of Pharaoh, and she's even remunerated for her services. In God's sovereignty, he has kept this baby Moses safe from Pharaoh's own edict, and even made the child a member of the royal family to do that. And the point here, the big point here, is God is providentially protecting Moses. What I mean by that is God doesn't work supernaturally here. He works providentially, meaning he works through natural means and circumstances and people's decisions, and he's involved behind the scenes to move things forward and through to accomplish his will. And you know what else this all means in the fullness of times? It means Moses will now grow up in a situation where he will receive the finest education available in the world at that time because he's now a member of the royal household of Egypt. We are actually told in the New Testament in chapter 11 that Moses was taught in the school of Egypt Yet Hebrews also tells us that he will choose later to be identified not as a son of Pharaoh's, but even with that education and background, he will choose rather to identify with the suffering and affliction alongside the people of God instead of forgoing that and just staying where he is and enjoying the passing pleasures of a prince of Egypt. He could have chose great riches and treasure in Egypt. Instead, he will chose God's greater riches. Okay, in all of this we can see God is protecting him and God will prepare him. But what is he preparing him for? Let's continue in the text, picking up at verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he thought no one was watching him, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, 
two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one, Who did the wrong? Why are you striking your companion? And then they said, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is now known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Okay, so in the first 10 verses, we had described first the early life of Moses, and now through verses 11 to 15, they're describing for us his time and then his escape from Egypt. So the story so far from a narrative sense is fairly straightforward. We know from a passage in Acts chapter 7, especially verse 23, that the point at which this happened, Moses was about 40 years old. And we also know from that passage from Hebrews that I referred to a minute ago, that Moses at this point is declared to be a man of great faith. So he's now 40 years old and he's aware that God is going to use him. And he goes out and he sees and he's witnessing and he's feeling the burden that has been placed upon his brother and sister Israelites, the children of Israel. And emotionally he starts to take their side to the point that when he sees an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Israelites in an act of impulse of anger he rises up and kills the Egyptian thus in a very real way siding with his own people over Pharaoh's people but was that the right thing to do and was it the right time to do it what I think is really interesting is that it says that first of all it says Moses looked around to first of all check no one would see what he was going to do when he killed the Egyptian. And when he thought no one was watching, he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. So Moses at some level must know that he is stepping out of line, not just in the manner of killing the Egyptian, but also in the way he which he has taken this matter into his own hands. And what we find out is several days later, when he sees two of his own Hebrew men fighting and he tries to break them up, one of them says, who put you in charge? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian woman? So it appears the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. Moses, at that point, didn't think anybody knew about this. As a matter of fact, let me remind you, it says he looked around and he didn't see anybody was watching. So he did, in fact, do his best to make sure it wouldn't be discovered. But now we find out that it was, in fact, witnessed by someone and the word is out, so to speak. And quite frankly, it's reasonable to say that his reaction was one, well, somewhat of panic. And with good reason, perhaps. I mean, because sure enough, when Pharaoh hears about it, he sends out word to have Moses killed. And Moses then flees to the adjacent land of Midian. And the next time we find him, we see him in Midian, somewhat downcast, I would suggest, sitting on a well. Okay, that's the point where that section broke off. So what do we learn from that? Well, I think the huge lesson here, the big lesson, is that murder is never going to be the means of accomplishing God's plan. Remember, God wanted Moses to deliver the children of Israel, but he didn't want Moses to take that matter into his own hands and do it in an emotional or an angry way. Moses wasn't depending on the Lord at this point when he made that decision to kill the Egyptian. He wasn't trusting the Lord. He was in a fit of impulse saying, I'm going to handle things my own way, which just led to him having to flee. 
Let me just ask you a question. If you were looking for a great leader today, based on what we've seen so far, would we think Moses is the man for the job? Remember, he said so himself. He's not qualified. He never thought he was qualified. And now he's become an impulsive killer. But the Lord is still going to use him. So the situation now, this needs to become part of his preparation. There's a very valuable lesson here, and that is if you try and do things in your own way without trusting the Lord, God may, yes, he may still indeed use you, but he's going to have to deal with all this other stuff first. And the problem is now that he is he decided to do it his own way, not God's way, so God is now going to have to take some time to train him, to refine him, to be more in his will. Okay, there's one more short passage in this chapter, and that's the end of this part of the story, the early part of his life. We pause at verse 15, you remember, with them sitting downcast by a well. Let's pick it up in the next verse, where it says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water. So they're obviously at the well. And they filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up on their behalf and helped them water their flock. When they came to rule their father, so that's the name of the father of these seven girls, he says, How is it that you've come back so soon? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hands of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said, And where is he? And why is it that you've left them? Call him, that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Sipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershon, for he has said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened that in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. But the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of that bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Okay, now we're way outside of Egypt now. He's over in the Sinai Peninsula, and we see this priest who Bible experts suggest was probably a priest of the true God. He has seven daughters, and it is their job to help feed the animals. And they come to the well where Moses is at or has just previously been. But also some shepherds, they arrive at the same time and they try to shoo these women away. However, we see Moses steps up and helps the woman. Now I think it's worth noting this is the third time in the passage that Moses has tried to intervene in a situation. The first was when an Egyptian was being beaten and he steps in to save the Hebrew. And the second is when he witnesses two Hebrews fighting with each other. And now this third time, when he sees these young girls and witnesses what he considers an injustice, he steps up again to try and help them. And he feeds and helps them then feed and water their sheep. And when the girls get back to the father, they tell him what has happened. Because he says, how come you're back so soon? So it seems clear to me that because Moses helped them, they got everything done faster just on a practical level. But anyway, that leads to the father to say, how come you're back and it's all been done so quick? And they tell him about this Egyptian man who helps them. This suggests that Moses was still probably at this point dressed like an Egyptian, or at very least he had an Egyptian accent and spoke that language. At any rate, 
They said there was an Egyptian and he saved us from the shepherds, the shepherds who had come and wanted to chase us away. And then he actually helped us draw water for the flock. So his father says to the daughters, then why did you leave this man behind? Go and get him and invite him to have dinner with me so I can thank him. And that's what happens. And he has a meal and one thing leads to another. And then Moses ends up not only getting a meal, but a wife. And the passage closes by telling us that the Pharaoh who had originally ordered Moses' death died. But it also tells us that things continue to get worse for the children of Israel back in Egypt. And it says that the children of Israel begin to cry out to the Lord, crying out, deliver us from our slavery. And the text also tells us that it is this point, hearing the cries of the children of Israel, that God remembers his covenant promise the thing that he originally promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in that he would give their descendants the land of Israel. So the Lord remembered them and now he's going to get Moses to come and lead the children out of Israel. Now we know from other passages of scripture that Moses actually remained in his situation in Midian for another 40 years. He got married and he had a son But the question then rises up is why did the Lord allow him to spend all that time in Midian and in the Sinai Peninsula? Well, there are several possible answers to that. And I think more than one, if not all of them, apply. But I would suggest that one of the main reasons is because the Lord was using that time to in fact train Moses. He and his family had to learn to live and survive in what was basically a desert region, and he did that for 40 years. Now, as you may know already, where this is going to take us in the narrative is later, the children of Israel will have to do exactly the same thing. So during this time, he's obviously learning the geography and the layout of the very place where they're all going to end up wandering for another 40 years. There's another 40 years of wilderness wandering to come in the story of the children of Israel. So now here we have Moses spending 40 years living and learning about the place, in a sense learning what he's going to have to practice and what we would today call his future ministry for another 40 years. Okay, that's the story. That's the narrative text. Let's try and put it all together and see what it means. What we see when we look at the overall arc of the story, is the Lord providentially protects Moses. And when he has to flee Egypt because he's rashly killed an Egyptian, the Lord will use that situation to prepare him for his future ministry by taking him to the very place where he's going to be based with the children of Israel and have to survive for 40 years. Let me suggest the principle we can all learn from this is that namely the Lord prepares people for service by sometimes sending them, well, I suppose to what we would today call the school of hard knocks. That's where you learn to serve the Lord and the number one lesson in that curriculum should be, always will be, do not try and do things in your own way or in your own strength. Rather, learn to follow God's will and depend on his strength. Remember, God had predicted that what would exactly happen to his people is that they would be in the land of Egypt as slaves for 400 years. Genesis 15:13 quoted that figure. So calendar-wise, Moses' initial actions were, in fact, 40 years premature because that's when he killed the Egyptian, which he shouldn't have. 
so apparently it seems he needed more training in the desert and the people perhaps needed more training in Egypt. At any rate, the Lord orders all things according to his will and his wisdom. God's not in a hurry, but neither will he leave his people suffering. Once they got to the point where they cried out to him, he listened. And during that time, the Lord took Moses to the school of hard knocks, so to speak. And he was 40 years over across in Midian, preparing for his future survival and his future time as a leader of the children of Israel in that place. So in conclusion, let me put it like this. Whatever you're going through, the Lord can indeed use it in the future to minister, well, to help you first, to train you, and to help you minister to other people. That's very important. God can use everything that happens to you, everything you've done in your life, good or bad, he can use that to help other people. But if it's bad, he needs to train you to how to use it for good first. And the way he will do it for us, I believe, in this day and age, is usually he will bring someone into our life that's gone through some of the same things that you went through, maybe made the same mistakes that you made, and they will be able to help you to get to the place you need to be in God's will, so that then you too, in the future, can use that experience again that you had to help other people. So no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what the story of your life is, be encouraged because what this tells us today that whatever you're going through today might just be a vital ministry and a vital ministry and part of your training for what God has planned for you in the future. Okay, my friends, that's it for today. Thank you again for joining me. You've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless, and this is a project for you and I together to work through the entire Bible, Lord willing, over however long it takes, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're welcome to pick up where we are today, or you can even go back to the episode one and work through at a pace that suits you. Now, the place this podcast is hosted is the Bible Project at buzzsprite.com. You can obviously subscribe to it wherever you're getting your podcasts from, but it is on the Buzzsprite, Bible Project at buzzsprite.com. That's the place where you'll find links to all the other places I put free teaching resources, as well as a full transcript of everything I've said today and for each and every episode. That's freely available for you to use in your own personal study or in the preparation for any teaching, preaching, small group leadership that you might have. Take it and use it, I trust, with the blessing of the Lord. It's also the place where you'll find links to other places where I put other material and resources. And there's also a place there called Patreon where you can choose to partner with this ministry financially and become a, a patron of this work, allowing me to bring the Word of God within the orbit of more and more people on places on the internet and make it freely available. 
It's also the place where I put some bonus material. My full ministry involves preaching and teaching in other places and also doing more formal, structured discipleship type courses, unapologetic writing. That all tends to get placed on Patreon as bonus episodes. Some of it finds its way into my main podcast ministry here, but most of it's there just to help and encourage people and as a thank you for those who make the commitment to support the main ministry. So with that all said, I'll leave it there today. Thank you again for joining me. If you're finding this helpful, please consider sharing it on the places, on the social media networks that you use so that other people can be given the opportunity to come on this amazing journey together through the Word of God. So with that all said, it's bye for now, and I'll see you back here tomorrow. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me. Whatever day suits you is absolutely fine. But I'll see you again soon on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.